Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Paul Wagner. Welcome, Dr. Wagner. Well, welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Am I, I'm pronouncing your last name right, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I answered to just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know who you are, can you give them a little bit of background? Yeah, I teach at uh, a Gateway Seminary, which used to be Golden Gate in California. It's a Southern Baptist school. And I, the reason I think you have me on is because I wrote a book called Journey from Text to Translations that gives kind of the history of where your Bible came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's, and I'm really excited to talk about that because that is something that I'm very, very passionate about. Um, and so uh, it's a joy to have you on. Tim Mackey, we had him on to talk about the formation of the Old Testament, and he recommended your book. And I was like, oh, why don't we get him to, to do the podcast? So uh, before we talk a little bit about the book, what inspired you to write the book? Well, actually, I had been teaching at Moody Bible Institute for about uh, nine years, something called Bible Introduction. And so I was covering where the Bible came from and all that, and I couldn't find a really good book that covered the area that I wanted. So I thought that might as well write one. And um, and I have to admit, it actually was an exciting uh, process because what happened is it kind of pulled together all my research for over those last 10 years. And it really felt good to actually be able to write something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's uh, such a, a great thing that you did that because it's, it's a necessity. Um, I think especially for this day when people have so many questions about the Bible and one of the things is constantly, well, it's not a reliable source. And so you need to know kind of the formation of it to kind of debunk that. Um, idea. So when we talk about uh, from text to translation, can you give us kind of just a general overview? Uh, I know that's <laughs> hard to do yeah. uh, of the formation <laughs> of scripture. What do you think some key elements that we we should know that most people don't? 
Well, I think what happened, uh, how I started the book is just give some big pictures. <laughs> what What is the Bible? What's the New Testament? What's the Old Testament? So I started with kind of a structure of what the Bible contains. And then I tried to go through from all, I, I started uh, with writing because you could never have a Bible unless you had writing materials and, and that. So I started about 2000 BC talking about what they had at that time with writing materials and stuff like that. And then got up to the printing press and things like that, that they'd used. And then went into uh, basically uh, talking about textual criticism uh, of the Bible so that you could tell whether it was accurate or not. Then I went into, well, first did Old Testament, then New Testament, and then told a little history of how the Bible came to be. And then um, at the end, went through the modern tr uh, translations. Now, remember, I, I wrote this book about 15 years ago. So I'm not up to date with the most modern translations, though I am revising the book. So that hopefully will be coming soon. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, when we talk about translations, because I know that's one of the, the pushbacks that we get from unbelievers um, as it relates to the Bible's been translated so many times. How can we trust it? Um, what is what is something that it's helpful for us to understand when we're thinking through translations of, of scripture. Now, I assume you mean modern translations. Like, is that what you're getting at? Well, it's being translated from, yes, like Greek to English or Hebrew to English. Um, okay. I guess we could go back further and start about the history of translations. When was the first translation? And talk about how the uh, Latin Vulgate and the KJV came. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought, I thought you might want to get a little of that history too. Um, all the way back at about, oh, about 250 to 150 BC, the Septuagint was translated. And that, what that is, is that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so all the way back then, they were actually making translations and, and stuff like that. So, so it goes back quite a ways, even before that, or at least about the same time as the Samaritan Pentateuch which is another uh, translation of the Pentateuch into Sumerian. So you've got um, quite a bit of translation process going on. Then by the time you get to the Syriac Peshitta was in about the fifth century, you also had the Latin Vulgate about 400 uh, being translated. And then even before that, you have some what are called old Latin translations. So you've got a history of translating going all the way back to like the second century BC. And then now, then we actually have now, then you had mentioned the King James. So about 1611, uh, King James of England decided to make a translation. And so that became basically the standard translation for about 400 years. And then um, starting about 1900, um, people started understanding that the King James was starting to get uh, stilted language that they weren't people weren't able to understand it very well. So starting about 1900, you get oh man, I have a in my book I have a whole page of translations that started to happen from about 1900 to about 1950, and then and then all the way. So we've gotten and most of them were more mod, you know they were trying to put it in more modern language. Then uh, we comes all the way up to like the NIV in the 1970s. Then the uh, NASB in about the same time. And then now we've got 
new English version. Uh, we've got new um, revised version. So we've got even more modern ones. Um, I think the ESV came out in about the 1996 or something like that. So we've got a whole history of translations. Now, the question you asked though is, um, on modern translations, what's the difference between them and, and are they accurate and things like that? Because I, I, I have all kinds of friends that have like gone into Bible bookstores and they come and to buy a Bible, they come out more confused than ever, you know, because they don't have any idea what's the difference between these. Um, most modern translations start with the same Greek and Hebrew text. Um, now, the, the King James is a little different, and the King James II and the, the New King James, those are a little different because their, their goal was to stick with what's called the Textus Receptus and use that as the source. Um, but most other translations go back to the Greek and Hebrew of the most modern translations that we have, or uh, most modern editions that we have of them. For those who don't know what the Textus Reflectus is, can you explain that? Yeah, um, it basically, Texas Receptus means. Receptus, the, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> the, uh, it means the text that was received from, it, it almost makes it sound from God, but that's not really true. It just means that it became the standard text in about the 1600s till about um, 400 years. I mean, it, it, it ruled pretty, pretty much until about 2000. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was the major translation. Even today, it's probably the standard translation for most people. Um, because I can remember when I was a kid, if you wanted a real Bible, you got a King James Bible. <laughs> but but now I think there's a lot of other, and, in, and I would say even probably even better translations because of based, they're based on the uh, more modern Hebrew and Greek. Because of textual criticism, we have actually found a lot of Greek and Hebrew texts that they didn't even know about in the 1600s. So that's probably why, uh, I'm so, so, so at the time, in 1600, they did a superb job. I, I'm not knocking them at all. They did a really good job. But in that 400 years, God's given us a lot of Greek and Hebrew texts that we didn't even know existed back in the 1600s. Mm -hmm. People always ask me, what is the best translation? And, and it's, it, that's a really tough question because it depends what you want it for. You know, what are, what are you going to do with the Bible translation? Um, uh, and then there's translation principles. That maybe I should talk about that for just a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Um, if, if you went to probably the most common um, modern English translations, all of them start with the same Greek and Hebrew text. It's just that the principles they use to translate are quite a bit different. So if you looked at the New Living Bible, the New Living Bible actually goes back to this, the Greek and Hebrew text, but their their uh, goal is that um, they want to make sure it's understandable. So they'll I, I sometimes do like a pie chart, and 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 the, on one side would be readability, the other side would be literalness, and every time you try to make it more readable, you're going to lose some of the uh, literalness, and so you want to make a choice of what what do you want to use that Bible for. And that, that helps you then decide, well, which, if you use then, that like the NESB is intended to try to make it as literal as possible. They even, they even tried to follow the Greek and Hebrew structure of the sentence pattern. Now, we could talk about whether that's necessarily going to make it more accurate or not. 
but that was their goal. So if, if you're doing Bible study, it probably is really helpful to see, um, you know, ex- at least as close as you can, what the Greek and Hebrew actually looks like. Um, NIV, the new, uh, uh, new International Version, has kind of gone the other way. They think that it's more trying to get it understandable. So they're, they're, if they're going to uh, err on any side, they're going to try to make it more readable and understandable. Now, sometimes they do a really good job. Sometimes I, I'm not sure they do as well as I'd like them to. But I also want to tell you that every modern translation, it has a purpose. And, you, and I think they're, they're amazing what they do. Because every translation has to go before a committee. You know, they all have a committee that helps them to know what they're, you know, uh, what they want their Bible to look like. And so it has to go in. There's anywhere from 70 to 100 people going through the translation, making sure it's as accurate and it flows in English and all that. So so they really do a good job. I do want people to know that. (laughs) (laughs) That's helpful. When we talk, when we go back, I want to go back a little bit further in time. When we talk about uh, translations and um, copies of of um, originals, yeah. um, what are some things that you think some some scri- scribal traditions that will help um, us navigate understanding it being copied over over time? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, in the uh, the rabbis actually had a whole tractate from the Mishnah that explained rules on how they were supposed to make a translation. Um, but let's go back even before that. That's like the sixth century. Or you could go back to the early as the second century AD. But let's go back before that. My my understanding is that even in the Old Testament, it often like you see passages in the Pentateuch where where God tells Moses to write this book down. And put it with the uh, the ark, and make sure that you have the people read it and understand it. So you've got all the way back into Genesis, God letting Moses know that he wants he wants this revelation to be available, uh, so that they can know what they what their God expects. It's from from all the research I've done, there's never been any anything like that in any of the languages or in any of the other uh, you know, religions where God actually spoke to his people and then said, now write it down because I want my people to know what I'm like. And so that's kind of the foundation that we start with. But then now, um, as we don't know a lot about that early time period, but more than likely they had a whole group of people called scribes. Um, they were called different things at different times, but the main one back in the early time was a scribe. And you know about those, because when you get to New Testament, remember the New Testament talks about the scribes and Pharisees? Well, where that probably came from is that those those scribes were the people that copied scripture that actually kept the tradition accurate and alive and, and um, uh, you know correct for them. So they had a whole group of people dedicated their lives to writing scripture. And that's basically all they did. So you can imagine they know their scripture pretty well because they're the ones copying it and checking it and all of that. Um, and some of the earliest things that we know about um, is that it, it does talk about, um, uh, like um, in Daniel, it actually talks about, uh, in chapter nine, he actually says, I went and looked in the books and saw that Jeremiah had said that this that in 70 years they were going to be in exile. So so 
even at that early time in Daniel, we know that there's some kind of writing and some kind of structure that God had already put into that to have a group of books that they could use to tell them, uh, you know, about what he had said. And then, so, and then, um, so they, apparently there was a group of scribes that kept copying scripture because most of them were made out of either papyrus or some kind of animal hides. Um, probably the earliest was papyrus. Um, in Egypt, papyrus goes back all the way to about 3000 BC. So it was probably the earliest kind of writing material that they had. But then about Qumran time, we do know they were using uh, a leather or parchment uh, to, to uh, copy scripture. And in the 480, we know like Alexandrinus or Codex Sadiaticus were actually made out of what is called parchment. And there's a little difference between leather and parchment. It's the way it's treated. Um, parchment is actually um, supposed to be, um, the best kind of parchment is from a calf that's not even been born yet. So that I let you know, it, it would be, it'd be really, really soft skin. And then it would be put in uh, lime to make it wider, to stand out. And that's, that's kind of where, the process starts and that's so so it starts off with papyrus and papyrus is is kind of a brown color so so um uh it it black ink would show up on it but if you can make the uh, parchment or leather whiter it'll show up even more and so that's why parchment at about 400 AD was and it probably goes back earlier but that's one of the earliest manuscripts we have that we know is used by uh, in they use parchment on it anyway I hope I didn't didn't just bore you on the whole no, that was good. That was helpful. Um, we, we you mentioned the scribes and the the um, kind of guidelines they had. What were those guidelines? Well, um, some of them were like you could never write anything from memory. You always had to look and see um, and and check it. Uh, another thing is you could only put like forty to sixty lines on a page. I think that was to make sure that it didn't get too squunched together so you couldn't read it. Uh, another thing is um, whenever you said the name Yahweh or wrote the name Yahweh, you had to re-dip your pen so that I'm assuming so you wouldn't run out of ink in the middle of it or blotch it in the middle of it. And some of those uh, things say that it, that even if a, a king uh, talked to you during that time, you could not uh, look at him. You needed to finish writing that name before you could respond. So that's kind of some of the things. They even told exactly what kind of material was supposed to be used and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it gives it gives a whole bunch of guidelines. And and really, it's amazing. Oh, okay, probably should tell you about one other thing. One other thing is they always counted the letters so that at the end of the day, if you or at the end of a page, if you didn't have the correct number of letters, then you had to go back and see where your mistake was. And if you made more than three mistakes on one page, you had to destroy it and start again. So you wouldn't have, want to have a really bad day or you, you wouldn't get very far. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Cause that's, that shows us that they held translating yeah. scripture in a very high regard. And yes. it wasn't a careless act. It was something they did with carefulness. Yes. Yeah. And, and, it, and that, oh, that tells it, it. We don't know how early those rules go back. They could go back as early as the second century AD, but they could be following guidelines that they had all the way back further too. Um, it, we just don't know because the information is just not there. We do know we do know that they did textual criticism 
in about the first century because um, the scribes talk about there's three uh, scrolls of the of the Bible that they had in the temple. And when two of them agreed against the third one, they changed the third one. So, so even at that early stage, they were doing some kind of textual criticism, evaluating what the you know what was the majority of the reading, and then change the other one to it. Mm -hmm. So that gives us some help too. That's definitely definitely helpful as we're thinking through um, the translations. When you're when you're challenged with the question, we don't have the autographs, and what I mean by autographs, the original of right. the Old and New Testament. What is usually your response. Yeah, and that's true. We don't have the original autographs of either Greek or Hebrew. And I'm sorry about that, but but God must have thought that that was not necessary in the process because I mean, we know God could have kept them, but apparently he didn't. So so he must and and here's here's basically what happened when a when your manuscript got old or uh, got started to fray or anything like that. They would make a new translate or a new copy of it. Apparently, those new copies were also as authoritative as the old one. So they didn't they didn't really see the old one as any better than the new one they'd made. And so they and because they checked it so well, they would they'd be very confident that it was um, an accurate translation. So um, so using my response to them is um, in the New Testament we have manuscripts that go back almost within 50 to 75 years of the original. Um, P52 was once thought to be, it's a portion of John. They once thought it was an original manuscript, but now they know that it was probably written about 125 AD to 150 AD. So if that's true, that's like 50 to 70 years after the gospel was written. So that's actually really, really close um, because scribes usually continued to write for anywhere from 25 to 50 years. So that gives you that that's that's basically the lifetime of a scribe so that if if they were wrecking it or corrupting or stuff like that, you've still got the scribe that probably wrote it still being around uh, to say, hey, you've messed up my manuscript. That's not what I said. So, it's you know, the good news is uh, and, and that's why a, a little of textual criticism helps us that we um, I often say we have over five thousand eight hundred manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, some of them are just portions, I agree, but some of them are full manuscripts and stuff like that. So, so God could have kept the originals for us, but he chose, I think, instead to give us all kinds of evidence that could show that we've actually got an accurate text. So by checking uh, the Greek manuscripts or the various ones or the Hebrew manuscripts, we can actually find out what it's supposed to say in each of the texts. And I think I think that's a, a better way of checking it than keeping the text, you know, the same autograph all the way through. I often tell my students that if if God would have kept the autographs, probably would have ha what would have happened is we would start to worship the manuscripts rather than the God behind them. And so I think he's he wanted us to know those manuscripts aren't the important thing. It's what they say about me that's important. Now, did that help answer your question or would you like yes, some it did. I think that's that, very helpful. That's well, a we, where I start anyway. Mm -hmm. When we think about uh, the councils um, that were pivotal yes. in not necessarily the formation of the canon, but solidifying 
the 66 books we now have, what are some of those councils uh, that are important for us to, to think about? Well, um, the one they always go to is the Council of Jamnia. Um, but but there was no there was no Council of Jamnia. It's what what Jamnia is is in about ninety A.D. Well, in seventy A.D. the Jerusalem was destroyed, right? So after that, they couldn't actually do, the scribes couldn't do their work in Jerusalem. It was a destroyed city, so they actually moved to a place called Jamnia, which is about uh, I think it's about seventy five miles from Jerusalem. It's it's down in the Shefla area of, of Israel. And what they did is they they became a group of scribes that copied scripture there. So that became the center of where uh, scroll study, you know, continued. And it's in, at that point, there was some decision, you know, whenever you have people, you're going to have decisions that or uh, questions come up about text. And there was, there were five books in the Old Testament that they questioned, like, like one was Proverbs, because in uh, chapter 20, 26, no, 24, verses five and six, it almost makes it sound like the text is contradictory. But they figured out, um, one, one says, um, answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. The other one says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes or something like that. And and so they, in the Hebrew, they are real similar. But what they figured out is, well, there's a time, there's in, in certain situations, it is wise to use, to, to confront a fool if you've got a relationship or you know, with him maybe you can convince him but there's going to be times that when you confront a fool that you know you're never going to be able to change him or be able to um, you know convince him so he's, so the logic is is there's going to be times when one of them is the right proverb to use there's other times when another proverb is, is the right one to use so even the scribes at that time decided well they're both right they're not contradictory so, so it was things like that. They had little questions. One was Ezekiel, because in the beginning of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, remember they have that picture of God, the the, the throne, and so they 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 wondered if that was because by that time something called Kabbalah was starting to happen, which was Jewish mysticism, and they didn't want to get the they didn't want the Ezekiel to be connected with that, but then they realized, wait, this is this is this is. A picture of God, and this is the best way to explain it. So all of those questions that they had got worked out, and at the end, nothing really happened there because initially they all knew they were part of Scripture, so their questions about it really didn't really do really didn't affect anything. Um, I think the ones that probably be you're talking about is more in um, not so much the councils as much because the councils were making theological decisions. These and, and using the text that they had, so uh, I think the main one that I think you probably want to know about is that there was a letter um, by Irenaeus that was written to the churches, actually describing the list of books, and and that was about two um, almost three hundred BC. It was about two seventy something, but about that time, there was a book that or a letter went out to his parishioners telling them. These are the books that we believe are authoritative. And that's that's the one they usually go back to. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't. That, that just means that there was at least some questions among some people that they didn't know which uh, uh, scriptures were accurate and which ones were, which were, which, well, by that time, too, um, persecution was coming. So they needed to know which texts do we give up our lives for to protect 
and which ones are not authoritative, we don't have to worry about. So, so it actually, it was really good reasons why they needed to know what Bible to use or what books to use. Mm -hmm. When we go back to the Old Testament, when you're talking about Ezekiel and Proverbs, um, what were the guidelines they were using? I know like when we're talking about New Testament and authoritativeness, we're talking about, was it routinely circulated, believed? Uh, did they believe that apostle or a close person to the apostle wrote it? Did it fall in line with yeah. uh, kind of the church uh, view of, of the gospel? But yeah. when we talk about the Old Testament, what were those kinds of guidelines? Yeah, in one sense, they're quite similar. Um, was it written by an authoritative person? Like Moses, his books would have been thought to be authoritative right away, right? Because of, because of who he was. I actually believe Isaiah would have been another one. Because of the character of the prophet, the, the people would believe and understand. So I actually think that's how God did it. He used the prophet to, to let people know, is this guy really from God or isn't he? And if, if he proved that, that yes, he was, he was a, um, God's messenger, then they would believe him. So I think that in the earliest times, uh, what did it, did, you know, so was it from a prophet of God? Did it claim to be um, inspired material or from God? Um, did it have any contradictions? Because God can't contradict himself. So obviously, if it has contradictions, that can't be true. Um, so it was basically the same kind of things. Use the character of the author. Use the character of the book. Does it claim to be authoritative? Um, and uh, does it contain contradictions? So those basically are the structure from what we can tell. Now, the way I got those, because there's no real book that tells you this is what we use to find those. But I went to Josephus and tried to go through his works because he's got a list of books that he claims are the Old Testament canon. And, and he often talks about them and he uses those kind of things like, did it come from an authoritative prophet? Did it have contradictions in it? Um, you know, does it claim to be the word of God? So actually, I got those guidelines from Josephus himself, and who's a Jewish um, historian at in the first century A.D. So so it's, it's a pretty good, I, I think, a pretty good uh, evidence that you've got somebody close to the material who's a Jewish person who would understand how they work. And, and that's what I did to, to, to figure out the principles. <laughs> that's helpful. Um, yeah. For those who, for those passages, for those books in the Old Testament, who we don't know for sure who wrote them, um, yeah. did, is there any evidence to know how those were chosen? Um, not a lot. Um, like like Proverbs, um, we don't know. I mean, they uh, some of the parts uh, like like at the beginning of Proverbs, it claims it, certainly the first. Um, uh, nine chapters claim to come from, um, you know, uh, uh, wisdom literature and stuff like that. But then there are some that say from Solomon, some from um, um, the Hezekiah's men, you know, uh, collected them. So um, my understanding at that point is, were they authoritative to the to the Jewish people? And if so, then that's how they they gain their authoritativeness. Mm -hmm. And so, and in, and then, in, in, it's nice because in the Old Testament, we've actually got Jesus confirming the structure and order of the Old Testament. Um, uh, in Luke eleven, verse fifty and fifty-one, it actually talks about the blood of the martyrs. 
from the blood of righteous Abel, which is in Genesis, all the way to the blood of, blood of Zechariah, which is in Chronicles. Now that's, that's their order. That's the Hebrew order. So he's basically saying that the Jewish nation is going to be held responsible for the, the blood of the martyrs that's from Adam, or from um, um, Abel all the way to Zechariah. And so he's putting like a book ends on the, on what he believes is, is scripture. Mm-hmm. So that is, so Jesus helps us a lot in that one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that's, that's always kind of the apologetic response. Jesus yeah. accepted it. So we should, so most of the focus sometimes is just on the canonization and the formation of the new Testament, not really understanding the formation of the old, but I think it's equally important for us to understand, especially in this day, um, to, to at least understand a framework of how, how it worked. Yeah. And, and let me give you two more pieces of evidence. Um, uh, like the Septuagint, that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so before you could have a Greek translation, you've got that, that they had, uh, uh, you know, uh, so before you could have a translation, you've got to have a text for them to <laughs> translate. So, so that actually helps us. So if we can date when the Septuagint was, we can actually then know that they have a canon by that time. And so that's actually helpful. And, and what we've got actually that does help us there is in Ecclesiasticus. That's, a, that's a, um, an apocryphal book, so it's not necessarily authoritative. But in its introduction, it talks about Greek manuscripts. Uh, or Well, it talks about the Hebrew manuscripts, but it also says that there were Greek translations made of it. So by that, and it's dated to about 132 BC. So by 132, they knew of Greek translations that were made. So we've got a pretty much set time that, if that, and we figure that's the Septuagint because that's the only Greek translation we know of the Old Testament. So that actually helps us some too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is extremely, extremely helpful. Uh, I know there's a lot to cover in your in your book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I know we only scratched the surface, but I think uh, this is a, a very helpful conversation. What are the things that are, you think are important when we're talking about the subject from text to translation that we may not have mentioned in this conversation, but you think are vital for our, our audience? Yeah, I, I think I think the one thing that I think is, is crucial is that we need to know that our Bibles today are accurate. Now, um, that doesn't mean that we have every, and, and there, that could also mean that, that there, there are a couple places, uh, like in the old and new Testament where we may not have, it, it could be, um, uh, you know, one or two words may not be, uh, totally be able to confirm whether it's one reading or another, but, but when you get into tra- textual criticism, it's like, like, uh, whether you said something or they said something. Well, the difference between that is not going to affect the meaning of the text at all. It's just how accurate are we going to be? And um, it's always been said that no element of theology is in question based upon the translations that we have. So they're all accurate enough to give us an accurate picture of what we need to know about God. And I think that's crucial to know. But but I also think... um, to realize that the modern translations are good. You just want to decide what is, find out the goal for each of the translations and then try to figure out what, you know, what you want to do with the translation to make sure you've got the right Bible for what you're doing. 
Um, I have one one more question. <laughs> what about when uh, I know Luther had uh, issues with James? Um, yeah. How were those kind of uh, arguments resolved? Yeah, and, and and there was I should have talked to you about this. There was a major uh, time in during Luther's time when um, the church argued for. Now remember, this is in is in. 1400s, right? 1477, I think. This is when um, the debate about is the Apocrypha part of scripture or not? Before that, it was not a debate. Um, it was pretty much a given that they knew. Now, now there was some questions about uh, some of the books in, in about 400 BC, or I'm sorry, 400 AD. Let me, let me, do, I'm sorry, I, I, if you don't mind, I want to explain that just a little. Oh yeah, go ahead. So, so in about 400 AD, what had happened is that, remember in like uh, 90, well, um, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. In 90 AD, there was persecution, so the church was scattered. Remember James talks about, he's writing to all the um, uh, people that are scattered throughout um, all the Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. so, so, so basically what happened is the church scattered. Now, when they were in Jerusalem, it was probably pretty easy for the, the Christians to know what the Jewish people thought was was uh, authoritative and what the church, you know, what the, the early church thought were authoritative New Testament books. But when they scatter, my guess is that some of those people had no idea what Jews believed because they may not ever see a Jewish person. So so when they when they went when they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, it made it a lot harder for them to know what books were authoritative and what books weren't. Uh, so that's why in about the 14 or the 400s, there was some debate, but that's why that letter came out from uh, that church father, letting them know these were the books that we believed to be authoritative. So it sounds like from what I can tell, there was a pretty standard understanding of what were the proper books until uh, uh, Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church had this big debate about whether penance and, and um, things like that were, were supposed to happen. And the Roman Catholic Church actually used the Apocrypha uh, in Maccabees. It talks about a, um, praying for the dead, and they use that as, as a foundation for um, a penance. And so they needed scriptural support for what they were doing because Martin Luther was saying, this is wrong. The Bible says nothing about this. Salvation is supposed to be free. And so they had to find some way to justify what they were doing. So at that point, they um, canonized the, the what are called the Deutero, Deuterocanonical or the Apocryphal books. So up until that time, it was pretty well understood what were the authoritative books. This debate in with the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther is what sparked the real problem and the debate that went on. Mm. Does That's that help very, them? Very yeah, that's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, to know the 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 motive behind the canonization yeah. of the those uh, those passages because those are passages that a lot of times people struggle with whether they should hold to the same standard as other books. Um, so that that's indeed helpful. Um, where can folks get your get your book? Oh, I think um, if they go on Amazon, it's probably the best way to get it. Um, it still still should be on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and are you on any type of social media? I'm I'm really not very good at doing that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess I'm old school. 
how can they get in contact with you? Just your school email? Yes, that would be good. Uh, do what uh, my email? Yes. Okay. For those who- so it's Paul Wegner and it's W-E-G-N-E-R. And then at G-S, let's Golden Gate Seminary, uh, or I'm sorry, Gateway Seminary dot E-D-U. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Wegner. This has been a very rich time. And I think oh. our, our listeners and viewers will greatly appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. And I hope you all will go get the book. Uh, this only scratched the surface, but it is, like you said, it's, it's sometimes hard to find. I know when I was in seminary, resources that kind of lay out um, the story of, of, of the Bible. Uh, there are some helpful resources out there, but I'm thankful that you can, contributed to this because uh, this is something that's been very, very important for us today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.